Let's stand together and we're going to pray and ask God to guide us as we look through um, Psalm 51, seeing what David did um, in his relationship with God once he had messed up. And, uh, and I trust that God will speak to us powerfully through this passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, you're amazing. Uh, my time here has been just uh, a rich, rich time in my own spiritual journey, and I, I thank you for that. And as we walk through these um, verses this morning in Psalm 51, I surrender to you right now, God. I ask you to um, take what you've got here and uh, use it for your honor and for your glory and for our good and speak in whatever way you want to do that this morning, Father. Touch our hearts, move in our midst, and we'll give you all the praise and all the honor and the glory. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. May you see it. A number of years ago, uh, when I was planting a church in Canmore, Alberta, I had an opportunity to meet a man named Ron, um, who became a very good friend. Uh, as we met, uh, he ran a, a place called the Ski Stop, which uh, was a, um, a ski rental place, a business that he ran. Uh, his marriage was just in the process of breaking down. He would phone me many nights uh, where he just needed scripture. He needed to read something that would get him through that particular night or that particular day. He'd phone me day or night saying, I need help. And sometimes he'd wake me up in the night and I would say, uh, hang on a second. And I'd go get my Bible. I'd leave my bed and, and I'd read through uh, passages with him. We ended up uh, uh, going through a process where we said, I said, well, Ron, let's, let's read through the Bible together, actually. And uh, we started a process where we read through the Bible annually and uh, it started a process of uh, reading through what uh, we read through the Bible. Uh, it was a thing called the chronological Bible. Now, that's not heresy. It's just restructuring uh, the Bible so you don't read through it uh, necessarily from Genesis to Revelation straight, but it's restructured chronologically. So you get a sense of the story. And the Bible is a story. And it's neat to, uh, to see how you, the, the, the story of God unfolds because... God is a relational God. And this year in particular, I've asked God to help me to see the, the story as it unfolds and, and the connection relationally for him to help me understand it through his eyes and um, the brokenness and the successes so often as it unpacks the story and it isn't a fairy tale. It isn't a fairy tale. And if you haven't read the Bible or you're new to it or whatever, um, you might kind of just think, well, is it really true? I'm reading this book right now called Rings of Fire, written by Leonard Sweet. And um, in this one chapter, it's called The Hostile Culture. And I just want to read this to you because we do live in a hostile culture. But uh, Leonard Sweet writes, writes this, and he says, The editors of GQ magazine selected some of their favorite writers to challenge received wisdom about classic pieces of literature. The panel was instructed to select 21 books they believed were overrated and could be struck from the canon. Number 12 on the list of 21 books you don't have to read is the Bible. Okay? So let me read that again. Number 12 in the list of 21 books you don't have to read is the Bible. 
The GQ editors chose to ban the Bible from any required reading list because, and I quote, it is, now listen to this, it is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. I found that kind of interesting. So it's repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, foolish, and even at times ill-intentioned. Now, when, when I read that, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, how they looked at that. And, and I wasn't, you know, of course, threatened by that or, or thought that, you know, I, I just thought, well, that's the world in which we live. That's how they perceive the Bible. They said, well, you don't have to read the Bible because of those things. It's foolish. It's ill-intentioned. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting how the world looks at that? And we realize we live in a spiritual world with spiritual enemies, and, and they're telling us, well, you don't have to read that anymore. And so Sweet, in, in picking that up and, and looking at it, he, he tells this story, and I want you to, to listen to this. Now, it's a fable. Now, understand that it's a fable, okay? He writes this, and he says, A medieval fable tells about a young woman who died early in life but was a troublemaker in heaven. Now, remember, it's a fable. So much that she was expelled but told that if she would return with the gift most valued by God, she would be welcomed back. So she, she, she searched the ends of the earth for what God might value most. And she brought back drops of blood from a dying patriot. She brought back some coins that a destitute widow had given the poor. She brought back a leaf from the Bible that one of the greatest preachers had used over a lifetime. She brought back some dust from the shoes of a missionary laboring on a remote island. She brought back many things such as these, but was always turned away. One day, she saw a small boy playing by a fountain. A man rode up on horseback and dismounted to take a drink. And the man saw the child and suddenly remembered his boyhood innocence. Then, looking in the fountain and seeing the reflection of his hardened face, he realized what he had done with his life. And tears of repentance welled up in his eyes and began to trickle down his cheeks. The young woman scooped up one of these tears in a vial and took it back to heaven and was received with joy and celebration. What does God value most? Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And I think we'll see today what God values most. Psalm 51 is the great story of David. Many of us will know it well, and if you don't, it's one of the most loved psalms in all of the 150 psalms that were penned for us in the Bible. It's a, a story of a man who, as we said, the Bible is full of relationships. It's a, a book that tells the story of God for us to see from Genesis through to Revelation of a God who, who created mankind and, and, and weaves the story throughout all these 66 different books that are in this Bible. And he tells the story of, of sometimes a wonderful tales, but sometimes often brokenness as well. And Psalm 51 is a story of brokenness. The backdrop of Psalm 51 is found in 2 Samuel 12, where God himself sends this man named Nathan to a man named David who writes this psalm. But it's God who starts the story. 
And he sends Nathan, who's good friends with David. And the story unfolds that Nathan tells David a story. And David gets all worked up about the story. And at the end of the story, Nathan looks at David and says, David, you're the man. And David's broken by it. And the interesting part is that between 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51, we don't know the time frame. We don't know how long it is. But we ultimately get to Psalm 51. So if you have your Bibles, we can read through Psalm 51 and we'll, read, um, we'll see what happens. And we're just going to read, first of all, the first six verses. And, and then I'm going to open up the, the, the uh, outline for you. And we'll see it on the screen in just a moment. It says in Psalm 51, starting at verse 1, it says, David cries out and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions and wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sins always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. We'll just stop there for now. We're just going to unpack the psalm in three different places, three different parts, and break it down. And I've called it threads. And so if you're a note taker, you can watch the screen behind me and see how the, the psalm unpacks. But I've called them threads. And the first thread is this, the thread of mercy in admission. And so as David begins to unpack the psalm and, and write it for, for us, we see this thread of, of um, admission. And David says... Uh, I've, I've got to understand something. I want to write and say this. I, I want mercy, and I'm going to admit something. And so what does he say? Well, in the first couple of verses, he says this. I want God, to, I want you to have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. I want you to blot out my transgressions. And so out of his knowledge of his relationship that he has with God, he asks God for mercy. And so what's happening? Well, what I said about the beginning about God is that he's a God of relationship. The whole Bible is a story of this God who didn't create the world and then walk away. He's a God who created and then interacts all throughout. He's always interacting. And so when I said about 2 Samuel 12, what did God do? He realizes that David has messed up seriously, and then he takes Nathan and he says, Nathan, go and see David. Why? Because he's a God who wants relationship with David to be restored. And through that restoration process, what happens? Well, David begins to pen this psalm, and he says, God, I know I've messed up. And so he says, I want you to have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Out of this relationship that David has with God, he asks for mercy. He knows God. And he asks, and he says, I've messed up, God, in my relationship. And so I come to you, and I want you to have mercy. Because he knows God. I want you to have mercy and compassion. And I want you to blot out my transgression. And that's the beauty of actually knowing our God. Because if David actually thought that God was some kind of vicious, violent, religious, legalistic God, he wouldn't dare to write these things. But out of knowing God, he comes and he asks for mercy because of the relationship that he has. And he wants the relationship to be restored. And so he says, please wash away my iniquity and cleanse me. 
And then we get to the, the interesting part. He admits. And that's found in verses 3 through to 6. The admission. And this is the part that's probably relatable for many of us. And maybe some of us who don't want us to be relatable. Because look at verse 3. He says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. And he says, Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinned from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. And so, we call this the admission. But here's, I think, the part that sometimes, for those of us who've gone to church for a long time, we disconnect about this point in time. Because we know that Psalm 51 is a psalm about a guy who committed adultery. And we disconnect right there. Because we say, well, David was a guy who was seriously messed up. And Russ, this psalm isn't about me. Well, good for you. I want to affirm you in your non-committing of adultery. That's great. But look with me at the passage again. Look with me at verse 3. Because David says, For I know my transgressions. It's plural. So he's not just talking about adultery. He's obviously talking about more than just adultery. So come back with me to the psalm. And don't worry about the fact that you didn't commit adultery. I can tell you right now, neither did I. So you and I are perhaps in the same boat. So let's get back to the psalm together. Don't disconnect. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you want to disconnect again and say, well, I didn't commit adultery. Hang on a second. Neither did I. And you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Well, you can reconnect right there. Because you and I were both sinful at birth. Even if you didn't commit adultery. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Verse 6. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. So what's he talking about? Well, David is saying, I've been sinful from the time I was born. We understand that we're conceived in sin. And the only thing that would change us is when we understand who Jesus Christ is in our need of a Savior. And I think we can play the game of religion and play the game of church and play the game of comparison, and play the game of grading our sin, and sometimes think, well, well, I'm a pretty good person, I'm a, I'm a pretty good uh, Christian, and, and my sin really isn't all that bad, and we can look down the row, or look down the, the, play, the game of, of, uh, uh, of church in the sense of thinking, well, my sin isn't as bad as somebody else's, and, and want to grade our sin on a scale of one to ten, and say, well, I'm just a, a one or two when it comes to sin, whenever I know some other people who are like an eight or nine or ten of their sin. But what did David say? He said, against you and you only have, our sin, have I sinned. And so if I compare my sin to God, then the number really doesn't matter, does it? Because if my sin, no matter what the number is, is simply graded against God, 
then all of a sudden the number doesn't matter at all because against you and you only have I sinned, then that's all that matters. One, two, nine, ten. I sinned against God. And what does David say in here? He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. How's the truth in your heart? Is the Holy Spirit prodding you right now? When it comes to our sin, God wants us to come clean in our own hearts. We can look as good as we want outwardly, but could it be that right now, inwardly, there's that sense that things aren't all right? And you know what that sense is when things aren't all right? That's the Holy Spirit telling us that things aren't all right. And there's that lack of peace happening right now because the Holy Spirit is prodding us and pricking at our own hearts and saying, you know it's not right. And you can say, well, I, I haven't done anything all that bad. And it doesn't matter all that bad. What matters is, is it right with our own relationship with the Father? And David says, surely, surely you want truth in the inward parts. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. Is your heart right with the Father in your inner heart? Or are you still playing the game of religion where you're comparing yourself to all others around you and saying, I'm not as bad as. But David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The only person we compare ourselves to is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the only one. The second thread, thread number two. Because you see, if we get thread number one right, where we come clean and admit, then that leads to the burdening of our hearts being lessened completely, and we can shed that, that burden completely and, and get rid of it when we come clean. And then the thread that comes next is verses seven through to 12, is the thread of joy that comes with cleansing. Because it says in verse seven of, uh, of Psalm 51, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, a pure heart, O God, and remove, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. And so the thread that comes with cleansing is this, the relational thread of pure cleansing versus joy. David knows all of the religious exercises that I could possibly do will never get me to this point. David knows that no amount of doing good works will solve his problem. So he turns to the one, the only one, who can fix his brokenness. And he asks God, cleanse me. Wash me. I have a problem. And you're the only one who can fix my problem. 
And then verses 8 and 12 are like brackets to the one thing that he's looking for, the searching for restored joy. And so he admits, he comes clean, verses 1 through to 6. And then verse 7, he asks for that, that cleansing that would come. He says, wash me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That cleansing will happen when I've come clean and I've admitted it. And then there's this burden that gets released from him. And then the joy that happens when we come clean. Oh, the joy that takes place when a sinner lets down and comes clean. When a relationship isn't functional, then there's no joy in that relationship. But when that happens, it's like a a, a burden gets released from us. And we can actually smile, and we can actually sing, and we can actually dance, and we can actually rejoice, because we know now that the relationship is right the way that it should be. And David is longing and hungering for that to happen and to take place. In verses 9 through 11, it's the center point of the whole psalm. And he says, Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquity. And then verse 10 is the center point of the psalm. It's like the high point. It's like climbing the mountain and getting to the very top of the peak of the psalm. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me, again, the joy of your salvation, of your salvation. The hunger for a pure heart. In the middle of the psalm, he gets to what's most important. And what we who are Christians should want more than anything else all the time is that pure heart. Here's what I want, God. I want to be right with you. I long to be right with you. I desire nothing more than to be right with you. I've got a friend who um, owns some farm property, and, and he was telling me this story not too long ago about how he came home one day, it was the summertime, and, and it was the end of his day, and, and his wife had already gone to bed, and, and so uh, he, he just went in and, and, uh, and just grabbed a shower and, and uh, wrapped a towel around himself and came out and just wanted to catch the late news, and so... Uh, caught that and was lying on the couch and fell asleep. And so was, uh, fell asleep and the TV went blank and uh, it's an old farmhouse that he lives in and he said that uh, he had his car parked outside next to his house and he said all of a sudden the motion detector light went on and it woke him up, it's 3.30 in the morning. And, and so he got up and, and he went there with just this towel wrapped around himself and, and he opened the door a little bit and there's this guy rummaging around just by his car and, and he thought this guy was going to break into his car and so he opened up the door to the side of his house and he just in the deepest voice that he could make he says uh, I know who you are I know what you're doing and I know where you live he, he didn't know the guy at all <laughs> and, and so this little weak voice says you do? and so my friend said yes he said, but stay right there. I've got to get some pants on. <laughs> so he went back in the house and got jeans and a T-shirt on and went back out. And to his surprise, the guy was still standing there. <laughs> and so he, he walked outside and he said, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, I, I don't really want to tell you. And so my friend said to him, uh, he said, well, you're, you're going to break into my car, weren't you? Well, 
well, I, I don't know. And so my friend said to him, uh, he said, you're going to break into my car because you're looking for money, weren't you? Well, maybe. And so my friend said, look, are you hungry? Yeah. He said, well, look, come on inside my house and I'll, I'll make you a turkey sandwich. He said, mister, I can't go in your house. And so my friend said, well, why can't you come in my house? He said, well, my feet really stink. So my friend said, look, I'll tell you what, you stay right there and I'll go in and make you a turkey sandwich and I'll bring it back out to you. And so the guy said, oh, okay. And so he went and made a turkey sandwich, got him a bottle of water and came back and he was surprised the guy was still there. And so uh, he came out and he sat down with him and he started talking to him and trying to figure out a little bit about his life. And the guy was all terribly shabbily dressed and had a little tiny backpack with him. And, uh, and so he went through some things about his life and um, started asking about some of his habits. And so then he finally said to him, he says, tell me your worst bad habit. And finally the young guy said, um, he's well, my worst bad habit is heroin. And so my friend said to him, uh, he said, well, where do you think your worst bad habit is going to take you? He said, well, it's probably going to take me to the grave. And my friend said, yeah, that's exactly where it's going to take you. And he said, well, he says, you know what? Um, he says, uh, I've got some friends who could help you get off of that habit. And the young man said, you do? He says, yeah, he says, I do. He says, but um, it's got to be a decision that you want to make to get off of your worst bad habit. And the young man said, uh, I, I've tried a couple of times, he says, but it's so hard to get off of it. And my friend said, yeah, he says, I know. He said, because it's a really, really bad habit. And the young guy said, yeah, it is. But my friend said to him, you're right. He says, the only place that bad habit is going to take you is to the grave. And the young guy said, you're right. And so my friend said to him, look, he says, it's four o'clock in the morning now. He says, I got to go back in and get some sleep. He says, but I tell you what, if you're still here in the morning, at eight o'clock in the morning, I'm going to come out. And if you're still here, he says, I'll take you to where my friends work. And they'll help you get off of your worst bad habit. He's, but the choice has got to be up to you. No one else can make that decision other than you. And the young man said, oh, okay. And so um, my friend went back inside and went to sleep and came back out at 8 o'clock in the morning and the young fellow was still sitting on his stoop. He took him down to the clinic where his friends worked. And you know what? Every single morning, when you look at the song, And David says in here, create in me a pure heart. He was writing this after he had sinned terribly. And he'd been confronted by his friend Nathan, who had actually been sent there by a God who loved him so desperately that he wanted David back in right relationship with him. That God the Father had arranged all of that because of his passionate love for David. Do you get the picture of how much God loved David? That he had arranged all of that? That David now is responding and he says, God, I want nothing more than you now. I love you so much that I want to be right with you. Every morning when you and I get up, there's a million choices out there of sin that entices us. And so when you and I get up and start our day, like that addict, 
We've got to make a choice that what we want is got to be God and nothing more. We've got to desire him so badly that you and I desire to break like what David said. Today, Father, what I want is I want a pure heart with you today. I want you so badly that I want you and nothing more. There's nothing this world has today, Father, that I would want more than I want you. And so, Father, today what I ask is I ask that you would create in me a pure heart. There's so many enticements that you and I have got to decide every single day of our lives that we want him more than all of the enticements that are out there. That's what David's penning here in Psalm 51. Then in verses 13 through to 19, we see the thread of declaration. Where once David's made that decision that I want him more than anything else, then he writes the latter part of the psalm where he says, then, then, after he's made that declaration, then he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And, I will, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. That's, that's all religion again. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then there will be righteous sacrifices and whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. You see, the, the thread of declaration is that our, our God... Once David is clean, then he wants to help others. And then lastly, in this declaration, David makes it clear once again, it's not about religion, but it's about relationship. We fool ourselves into thinking that as long as we're looking good religiously, God will be happy. God is never happy with religion. God is never impressed that we would look good by dressing up and coming to church. God is only ever pleased with a heart that's right with him. He is never impressed when we look good on the outside if we've got it wrong on the inside. We can't ever fool him by looking good on the outside when we've got it wrong on the inside. David says if it was about Religious offerings, I would bring them. But he knows it's not about that. It's about having a heart that's right with the Father. I love the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The reason it probably resonates so well with me is because at the age of 19, I was a prodigal. I got saved when I was 13. Gave my life to Christ as a young 13-year-old boy. But at age 16, I wandered away. And from 16 to 19, I was anything but a follower of Jesus. 19, I was studying law. wanted to become a successful practitioner of law. But it wasn't following Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or fashion. When God sent my Nathan to me, a friend of mine named Dave, who knew I wasn't walking with Jesus, and he said, hey, I've got a function that I'm going to 
you want to come with me? And I said, sure, why not? And there was a preacher that night in a stadium of 18,000 people. And I went with my friend Dave that God sent to get me to come, knowing that I wasn't walking with God. And Dave had the boldness to ask me to go with him. And we went to that stadium, and I listened to a preacher preach on the story of the prodigal son. And I was at the very back row of a stadium that had 18,000 people in it. You couldn't get further away from the preacher than I was. And I listened to him talk about people who were not following Jesus, but knew the way of Jesus. And I had my arms folded, and I sat there listening, thinking, well, I've heard this kind of thing before. And I didn't come that night to get my heart right with God. But God had different plans. And it was like the stadium emptied out that night. And it was just that preacher and me. And the preacher that night said, I'm asking prodigals to come home. And then he changed the call. And he said, I'm asking prodigals to come home, but only if they're willing to say, I'll never walk away from you again, God. And everything got real serious real fast. And I thought, wow, I'm not sure I'm willing to make that serious of a response. And yet I could feel and hear the Holy Spirit saying, it's time to come home. And so there I was, 19 years of age. I had my life planned out, and it didn't include God. But God said to me, it's time to come home. And he had made these arrangements with my friend and other people because he was coming after me. I'm amazed. By a God who chased us down. And maybe he's chasing you down here this morning. And you know you're not right with him. Whatever your sin may be, wherever you're at spiritually. And he's saying to you, it's time to come home. And so I stood and responded that particular night and said, okay, God, you've got me. And the sin that I had been involved in, I just was glad to get back on the bus that particular night. And I said, okay, God, I'm yours. And then when I walked back to the dorm that I was staying in that particular night in just outside of Chicago, Illinois, I just said, okay, God, I'm yours. He whispered to me, you're done with law. I'm calling you to preach. I didn't come from a religious family. I didn't come from a, a background of people who had that kind of thing. I thought, God, I'm just happy to be back on the bus. And I'd never thought of ever doing what I'm doing right now. I was just glad to be back in this family. He said, no, no, 
we're writing a new story for your life. I, I just couldn't believe that he would be willing to allow me to play a, a role in his story. But he's that kind of a God. He's that kind of a father. And so maybe you're questioning whether you're worthy. And the answer is yes. Because of Jesus Christ, you're worthy. Because I surely felt unworthy because of what I'd been involved in. And my father said to me, oh no, you're not worthy, but my son is. And now I'm going to take and use you to do things that I want to accomplish through you. And I'm amazed by what my God has taken and used my life for. And so whatever would be holding you back this morning, I want you to know that there's nothing that God can't do in and through you because he's that kind of a father. And so there's these two different things that are going on. There could be that self-righteousness that we need to get cleansed or there could be that sense of unworthiness that the devil wants to kind of tease you with and say, you're not worthy. Both are wrong. Both are wrong. On the one hand, we need to get self-righteousness cleansed and and get away from that and say, no, self-righteousness has no room because our God is a God that we compare only to him. And so we need to come and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And on the other hand, as a prodigal, you're always welcome. And God is always looking to call you back home again. And you don't need to listen to the devil any longer. It's time to come home. Either one of those, we need to come to the decision to say, Jesus, I'm willing to come and say yes to you today. Either one of those because we've got a father who's calling to us this morning and he's worthy and he loves you and he's incredibly amazing. We're gonna come into communion and Phil's gonna come up and lead us through that, but I'm just so amazed by this God that we serve and so thankful for the time that I'm gonna spend at this church and I just wanna say God bless you and keep coming. Let's just pray. Father. I'm so thankful for Psalm 51. I'm so thankful for what you've done in my life during these years here. I'm so thankful for this place that keeps on presenting Jesus Christ as the only answer for the world in which we live. God, you are so good. We continue to teach and preach Jesus Christ as the only solution to the world in which we live. We give you all the praise and all the honor and the glory. Because you and you alone are worthy. And we sing your praises once again this morning. In the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen.